to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. These words are written by Paul, maybe just before the Jerusalem Council that we've just finished considering in Acts 15 and the response to that. So here's what Paul writes to the churches in Galatia around this time. He says this in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You may be seated. May God be glorified through the reading of his word. Our Father, we would ask for your glory to be seen through your word by our hearts this morning. We pray that our souls would be sensitive to your truth. And we pray that that you, in, in your kindness, would convict us of sin, that you would cause us to respond rightly to you. We pray that, that the gospel message would be powerful in our lives and then also in the lives of our culture, that we would see men and women and, and children respond to these these truths, to believe in you, and they would enter into this this community of faith by your grace and experience the unity that is ours in your Son, Jesus. We pray that the things in our hearts that are resistant to your will would be broken, that you would do what's necessary to, to bring us into conformity with your desires for us. We pray this through faith and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I think it is uh, fair to say that we are in a, a time in our culture of, of much despair when it comes to issues related to ethnic unity, or rather maybe ethnic disunity. Uh, there was a, a poll that was conducted at the end of last summer. Remember, summer of 2020 was a time of just terrible events in our, our country when it came to issues of, of racial unity. And at the end of the summer, there was a Gallup poll taken on people's perception of the relationship between black and white Americans. And it was a, the Gallup found that there was a 20-year low in terms of how Americans viewed the relationship between white Americans and black Americans. I think 55% said that things were somewhat or very unfavorable. Uh, then 44% said that things were somewhat or very favorable. And that was terrible last, 20-year low last summer. Now, at the end of this summer, things got worse again. Not, not as, uh, not hugely worse, a couple percentage points. But in other words, things don't seem to have improved in terms of people's perception of the relationship between these, these two ethnic groups in our culture. Things don't seem to have improved much over the last year. We're at a a low uh, historically in terms of how people view that relationship between at least those two ethnic groups. Now, as I've talked with believers and unbelievers about this issue or heard people talking about this issue, I sense a lot of frustration, despair, 
anger at times as, as people think about some of the issues related to ethnic unity. And the question then is, how do we as a church respond to this? How are we to think biblically about where we are as a culture on these issues? And there are a lot of attempts to, to try to solve racial differences in our country and to, to bring about racial reconciliation. Uh, there's a book uh, George Yancey wrote uh, entitled Beyond Racial Gridlock, and he surveys at the beginning of that book all the different approaches that, that the secular world has to bringing about racial reconciliations, all the way from, you know, colorblindness, where you try to assume that there are no differences between ethnic groups and uh, blaming the majority culture for all the problems, saying, okay, it's all on you guys. I mean, there's all sorts of different approaches and everything in between those extremes, and, and nothing works, right? Nothing has been effective at bringing about lasting reconciliation. And my belief, though, is that as dark as things seem at times, Scripture and the good news of the gospel are sufficient to, to solving the problems that reside within our hearts in, in all areas, including the area of ethnic sin. My belief is that we have an opportunity as the people of God to provide hope in what seems like a, a hopeless situation to many. And so what I want to do is I want to use this, this dynamic that we see in the book of Acts between Jews and Gentiles in the, the first century church. I want to look at this dynamic between these two groups that we've talked about over the last months, year or so. And as we look at this dynamic, I want us to see some truths that we've already considered that we can apply to the situation in which we find ourselves this morning. And my hope is that as we go through this, all of us would be invigorated by the the desire to engage in the gospel ministry that God has called us to as a church because we see that the gospel is really the only lasting solution to these problems. Now, before I kind of begin talking about these different truths, there might be a question that you have. And that question might be, is the relationship between these, these ethnic groups of or is this relationship between the first century Jew and the first century Gentile really a, a helpful lens through which to view the ethnic division that exists in our culture? And even in that question, you may notice that I use the word ethnic and, and not the word racial. As we know, there is really just one race, the, the human race, and ethnicities are a part of that race that all of us are a part of. In fact, uh, let me, as I answer that question, let, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a, a definition that might be helpful as we think about what we even mean by the word ethnicity. Uh, this is from Shai Lin in his book, The New Reformation, and I think he gives a very good and, and simple definition of ethnicity. He says that a, an ethnicity is a group of people who are identified with each other on the basis of shared similarities, of particular similarities. So, group of people, they're identified. You can say, okay, that's that group of people, and they have these characteristics that are the same. Maybe it's cultural, maybe it's how they look, but they're identified. They're this ethnicity. They they share some sort of characteristic or characteristics. And I believe that is a, a better word to use if we want to be precise than the word race. Scripture speaks of one race, 
but it speaks of many different ethnicities. In fact, as we encounter the word nations in Scripture or peoples, we're, we're seeing groups of shared people with shared characteristics. Whenever the Scripture uses the word nations, we might think of geopolitical entities. That's usually not what Scripture is speaking of. It's speaking of people with these shared characteristic ethnic groups. That's, that's what we're talking about as we talk about ethnicities. Now, if that's the case, then I think the relationship between Jew and Gentile is a very helpful relationship for us to look at to help us understand how to view different ethnic groups in our cultures. Are there some differences? Absolutely. Is the analogy perfect? Of course not. But there are some things that I think can be really helpful for us as we think about ethnic unity in our culture. So let's, let's dive into this. And I'm going to go through some of these quickly, especially at the end, because that's what I always do. Um, but uh, we're going to go through, Lord willing, 10. I, I didn't want to get bogged down in multiple weeks of this. We're going to talk about some more of these things as we go on. We've talked about some things in the past. But let's, let's dive into these things and see what might be helpful to us as we think about God's call for us as Christians in this culture, engaging the culture with the gospel. Number one, think about things from ethnic unity in the book of Acts. Number one, sin is the, the root cause of ethnic conflict within the world and within the church. Sin is the, the cause of ethnic conflict within the church and within the world. Ethnic differences aren't sinful. That's something that God in his grace has, has given us, but, but ethnic conflict is. Now, if I were to ask you, to tell me a, a word that you think of when you think of racial sin or, or ethnic sin. Maybe the word that a lot of people would think of is the word racism. So what racism is kind of the ultimate sin that is associated with ethnic disunity or, or racial disharmony, racism. But there, there's a couple problems with the word racism. One problem is that when we use the word racism, for accusing someone of being racist, it, it can be a very broad accusation. So we can mean something from someone actively hating someone from a different ethnic group, or we can mean just I disagree with an opinion you have, and you're part of a different ethnic group. And so there's a, it, it's, it's not a very precise word. It can be very used very, very broadly. Now, the other problem with the word racism is that we can also define it very narrowly if we desire to. So someone uh, from a different ethnic group says something to us, and they're disagreeing with about us about something, and they say that uh, they use the word racist, and I can say, well, you know what? Racist means, and I can give a very narrow definition. You know, racism means actively hating someone who looks differently than me. I don't hate people who look different than me, or at least I don't hate people because they look different than me. I hate everyone who disagrees with me, regardless of skin color. It, it you know, it doesn't matter as long as you agree with me, we're fine. Uh, I, I can, I cannot deal with the hard attitudes with that I need to deal with because I've narrowly defined racism. The other problem is, let's say you say, well, I want to think biblically about racism. And you say, well, I'm going to go to my concordance and look up the race, word racism. And every time scripture condemns racism, I'll understand what scripture says. You're not going to find the word in most English translations, unless they're being like really hip or something. You're not going to find the word racism in scripture. Now, does that mean that scripture is okay with racism? Of course not. But Scripture uses some, some different categories of sin to let us know what, what the root heart issues are when it comes to the expression of, of racism. And I think those are helpful to think through. 
Let me give you some examples. And again, uh, some of this is from Shai Lin's book, The New Reformation. I've adapted some of them. But, but here's some examples of scriptural condemnation of, of these types of ethnic sins. One would be uh, ethnic favoritism or, or parti- the sin of partiality. We see this a lot in Scripture, right? Remember when we were in Acts, and you can kind of flip through Acts as we kind of talk about some of these things. Remember when we were in Acts chapter 10, and we encountered Peter and Cornelius. And as we talked about the relationship between Peter and Cornelius, we said that the sin of partiality means giving more or less consideration to someone on the basis of something external about them. So I have these characteristics that are external. You have those characteristics that are part of your ethnicity, and, and I'm going to show favoritism to one group over another. That's the sin of partiality. And Peter, as he interacts with Cornelius, recognizes that that's a sin. And as he is in, in this discussion with Cornelius in verse 34 of Acts chapter 10, he opens his mouth and he says, I understand that God shows no partiality. In every nation, among every ethnos, every ethnic group, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. And this, this gospel is for all people. And that's Peter recognizing that the sin of, that the partiality is a sin. We're to be like God. Another ethnic sin is we consider ethnic hatred. So I not just show favoritism to one ethnicity over another, one cultural group over another. I, I actively hate someone who's different than, than me. We compare groups and we, we say, this group I, I'm actively against. I want bad things, evil things for them. This is often what we think of when we think of racism and we say, well, I'm not that, so I can dismiss the idea that I have any sin in my heart in this area of ethnic disunity. I say, well, I'm not that. I don't actively hate people who are different than me, so I'm okay. But Scripture goes on. It's not just ethnic hatred. Another sin we see is the sin of ethnic pride, the sin of ethnic pride or ethnic idolatry. As we come to chapter 10 and 11 again of Acts, remember what happens as he's as Peter is sharing the gospel with Cornelius and, and the household, it says that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And, and it says that in verse 45, the believers from among the circumcised, and literally it says the, the believing of the circumcised, so it's talking about an ethnic group there. It says that group was amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So here's our ethnic group. And it's not all that shocking to us that, that God would show kindness and grace and favor to us, but it's shocking to the, the group of the Jews that the, the Gentiles get the Holy Spirit as well without becoming them, without becoming Jewish. It's, it's shocking. And then you come into chapter 11, and it says that those who were part of the circumcision party criticized Peter, saying, look, you went to uncircumcised men, you, you ate with them. What is that? That's, that's ethnic pride. It's, it's idolatry, a belief that we are intrinsically better than those from other cultures, or that our culture is, is something that must be preserved no matter what the cost. How are we, how are we guilty of this sin? Well, we're, we're guilty of this as we have a, an attitude of superiority, as we have a, a desire to preserve our preferences and our our tastes and our opinions at the expense of gospel ministry. 
Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9? Paul says to the, the church in Corinth, he says, look, to the Jews, what did I do? I became a Jew. In order to win the Jews, to those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not my, being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. We talked about that last week. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So Paul says, look, my, my overarching desire and passion is for all ethnicities, all groups to to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ and to worship him. And so on the things that don't really matter, personal preferences and tastes, I'm going to adopt those things if by doing that I can win all to Christ. He's not saying I'm living some sort of lawless life. I'm still under the law of Christ, the law of love. But these, these cultural differences in terms of, of, in comparison to the gospel, are, are nothing. And you and I are guilty of, of ethnic idolatry if we say, you look, my culture is of greater value to me than the gospel. There's also the sin of ethnic oppression we've encountered in Acts. Remember the, the troubled souls in Antioch. Their, their souls are weighed down, Acts 15 tells us, as the Judaizers come from Jerusalem to Antioch and begin to oppress them and say, look, you have to become like us. There's also... In Acts, we've encountered the sin of, of ethnic neglect, indifference. Remember Acts 6? What happens to the, the widows? The Greek-speaking widows are, are missing out on the distribution of the daily food to the, to the widows. And there seems to be an, an ethnic indifference that's happening there. It's not that they're actively hating these Greek-speaking widows. It's just they, they really don't care as much as they care for the, the widows who are part of their own cultural background. What if, remember Acts 11, at the end of Acts 11, it says the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and they, they began to tell about this famine. What would have happened if in Acts 11, the church in Antioch had said, oh, a famine in Jerusalem? Meh. We'll see how that works out. It's kind of a Jewish thing. It's not how they respond. There's not ethnic neglect, there's not ethnic indifference, that the church recognizes their responsibility to care for others. Here's my point as I, as I say this, that sin, we've seen in the book of Acts, sin is the cause of ethnic conflict within the world and within the church. My, my caution to you and my encouragement to you is, is this. E examine your heart. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And oftentimes when I, I talk to other people who are part of the majority culture in our, our country, people say, well, you know what, I, I, I'm no racist. I'm not, I've never been guilty of the sin of racism. And I, I said, well, you know, maybe if you're defining a certain way, sure, but, but let's really examine our hearts. Because as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that our hearts are desperately wicked. And if there's some category of sin that has never touched you in any way, I, I'd really like to talk to you about that because you are a very impressive specimen, right? And you might be lying to yourself, okay? If you say, I, I'm not guilty of any sort of, of, of ethnic, of wrong thinking about ethnicity in any way whatsoever, that's a very bold, bold thing to say. My encouragement would be, look, when it comes to issues of 
this also. When it comes to issues of cultures clashing and ethnic sin, it's so easy for us to see the ways in which other ethnic groups or other cultural groups are struggling and, and, and not to really turn our eyes into ourselves and say, look, where is my heart attitude failing? The log and the speck principle, right? Take the log out of our own eye first and, and ask God to show us where, where have we failed here? Here's the second principle we've seen in the book of Acts that I think is helpful to think through. Number two, uh, salvation can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. So I, I have these heart attitudes that I, I know are not in line with what, how God would want me to think. I, I don't deal with other people the way that I know that God would want me to deal with them. What hope do I have? And again, as we think about the answers from our culture, we, we think of you know, all sorts of, of types of responses, of, of ways that we're being encouraged to respond. But really, at, at the heart of a lot of our culture's response to ethnic sin is, is hopelessness. Th- there is no salvation. There is no deliverance from this, this sin which, with which you struggle. If you're, you're part of, of some cultural group, you're forever enslaved to the, the, mind, uh, the, the mindset, the, the thought patterns of that cultural group. There's nothing you can do. All you need to do is just kind of live in a state of, of perpetual penance. And I don't think that's a helpful way to, to think about the solution here? The answer is the gospel. Paul's burning passion is to make the gospel known. We've seen this over and over again in the book of Acts. You turn over to Acts chapter 13, and as, as he's preaching there in Antioch, Pisidia, what does he say? He says, beginning in verse 38, as he's preaching the gospel in the synagogue, he says, Look, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone, everyone who believes is freed from what? Everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So the law was insufficient to offer complete deliverance, and now I'm proclaiming this gospel to you, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient to free all people, regardless of, of cultural background, from whatever, whatever sins they're struggling with, and the type of salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ is full and complete. There's no need for any other solution. Now, why is this so helpful for us? First, it gives us the answer, right? But also, if we are consumed, I firmly believe this is to be true for our culture. If we are consumed by an awareness of the reality that we are a forgiven people, it is going to be hard for us to be a people who harbor bitterness. It's going to be impossible for us to be a people who harbor bitterness and animosity to others. What does Jesus say in Matthew 18? The slave who's been forgiven this amazing debt, this the slave forgiven this amazing debt, he walks out of his master's presence. And what does the verse say? It says, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay, you, pay what you owe. How, how contrary to the gospel is it for us as we look at the, the sins that we believe that other cultural groups or people of cultural groups, opinions they may have that are sinful against us and for us to harbor resentment, how contrary to the gospel is that? 
you and I should live in a, a constant state of awe. Not a, a constant state of, of awe that someone could, could have sinned against me so that I need to forgive them. I need to live in a constant state of awe that I have been forgiven by God. And as I live in that constant state of, of awe that I have been forgiven of God, my bitterness towards others dissipates. There's, there's no, I don't have the capacity to, to remain in a state of bitterness as I am consumed with the forgiveness that I have received. That's the message of the gospel. Number three, Christ creates one people. Christ creates one people. What, what is the preaching, the, the content of the preaching in the book of Acts? Over and over again, we see it's the, the name of Jesus Christ, the name of Christ, the name of Jesus. It, it's, and it's the great unifier. Paul, again, he writes Galatians at the same time. And what does he tell the people in Galatia? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm in awareness of the reality that Christ has died for me. And then he says what we read earlier in Galatians 3. So now, it's not that we aren't still Jew or Greek, that these cultural differences don't exist. I mean, we're still male and female, and we have the roles and distinctions of those those genders as well, and, and there's still people that he was writing to that were literally slaves, but literally free as well. But their, their unity in Christ consumed all of those differences. There was no difference in how they approached God, and they become one people. There's no gospel hope in our culture's confrontation of racial sin, but the gospel says we are united in the new covenant. John chapter 17, listen to what Jesus prays to God. As one person observes in this prayer, we see that the oneness of the people of God is is based on the oneness of God himself. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as as we are one, I in them and you in me, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The reality is that for those of us who believe the gospel message and receive forgiveness of our sins, we understand that God in his miraculous provision has created one people. And that creation of the one people is our hope as we think about the differences that exist within, within the world. Number four, the mission of the church is to make disciples. And we've talked a, a lot about this as we've gone through the book of Acts. The ultimate mission of the church is, is to make disciples to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and to prepare his people to worship him forever. And so as we go through the book of Acts, we see the people of God doing lots of of good things. We see them involved in caring for widows. We see them involved in in providing for the poor. We we see them sharing all things. We see them encouraging justice. But, But all of those things are not their ultimate mission. The ultimate mission of the churches in Acts is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all things are are consumed under 
under that. In other words, the mission of the church isn't to make moral unbelievers. The mission of the church is to, is to help people encounter the glory of Jesus Christ and believe and trust in him. Number five, number five, God loves ethnic diversity. Now, this, is, this may be a little bit hard to grasp, a little bit shocking to say, but there's a truth that I think is hard to escape in Scripture, a truth that's hard to escape in the book of Acts, and that is this. God doesn't just desire a large number of worshipers. We see that God has a specific aim of, of bringing a diverse group of large worshipers into worship of him. So from the very beginning in Matthew chapter 28 of the Great Commission, it's to, to make disciples of all nations. In Acts chapter 1, it's to go not just to Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria, to the remotest parts of the world. He doesn't say just stay in here and make as many disciples as possible. God has a plan to bring a diverse group of people into worship of him. We see this, this from the very beginning. The Abrahamic covenant is about not just blessing the people of God, the, the Jews, but, but the nations. The psalmist talks about this, this future day when the, the nations are going to be brought into Jerusalem and engage in worship of God. We, we see the prophets in the Old Testament looking forward to the day where God brings the nations into worship of his name. There's a diverseness of, of worship. We see this in the book of Revelation. They sing a new song in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 15:4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations, all ethnos, all ethnicities will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God loves ethnic diversity. They say, well, Daniel, <clears throat> let's just be frank. Uh, we have a little problem here in Tazewell and Woodford County if, if, that's, if that's a goal for a local church. I just looked at the census data. Uh, we're on the border of two counties, and according to the latest census, Tazewell County has 131,000 people in it, and 92.2% uh, would identify as, as, part, as, as white. And then the, the second largest group is multi-ethnic. Woodford County, similar statistics. Washington, our city from 2019, that the same thing. You say, are we in sin if in our local church we don't represent the, the global makeup of the world? In other words, we Take how many people are in the world, and do we, at every local church, do we have to have that exact same percentage? And the answer is, is of course not. It's, it's not, it's not going to happen in Washington, Illinois. But, but, let's not let ourselves off the hook too quickly. Here, here's some questions of application. One, am I passionate about missions? In other words, do I love ethnic diversity to the extent that I'm willing to engage in the task of missions to reach people from other ethnic groups, and do I desire to see them engaged in worship of the Lord? Another question to ask ourselves is, okay, um, diversity is not just about skin color. It's also about just all sorts of socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds. Am I willing to lay down the things of whatever ethnic group I'm, or cultural group I'm a part of in order to allow this to take place, because here's the reality. You put two people in a room, 
by themselves long enough, you're going to develop two different cultures. <laughs> and cultural differences are going to, to come to the forefront. And so, am I willing on a day-by-day basis to lay down my life, to allow the diversity that God desires to exist within the body of Christ to exist, or am I resistant to change? Am I saying, look, my way must be the way that God is worshiped in a body of Christ? And then a third question I would ask us as we think about where we are as a culture in, in central Illinois, do I rejoice in thinking about diverse worship? And do I, do I do I rejoice in the, in the idea that I, I anticipate God bringing greater cultural diversity to central Illinois? Because it's coming. Do we rejoice in that reality? We should. We should. Here's the four, uh, sixth statement I encourage us to think about. Number six, uh, ethnic sins must be repented of quickly. Repentance is necessary in Acts in the area of ethnic sin. We see Galatians and Paul's call to Barnabas and Peter. We see Peter's realization with Cornelius. Okay, God doesn't show favoritism, partiality. Now, let's talk about this for us. And, and let's, let me just be clear. Uh, this is the part of the message I'm most likely to get in trouble today. Okay? And I just want to remind you of a couple things. One, remember, you love me. And I love you. And remember, my mom's here today. So, you know, I'll be standing next to her after service if you <laughs> talk to me. Now, let's, let's think of a couple questions here. One question uh, would be this. Okay, Daniel, what sins do I need to repent of? Right? I think sometimes for those who are, are part of the of majority culture in, in, a, in, a, in a country or a group of people, say, okay, I, I'm being, sometimes people are accusing me of sin that I, I don't think I've done. What, a, I mean, give me Bible passages, specific chapter and verse, what am I supposed to repent of? And, and this is where I, I think it can be helpful to think about hard attitudes. Do I have a hard attitude of superiority? Am I indifferent to the sufferings of people from different ethnic groups? Do I have a, an attitude of, of uh, in, indifference as, as I think about their suffering? And, and do I have a, a lack of gospel fervor? You know, I, I don't encounter people from groups. I don't care about the gospel being out, going out to, to people with whom I'm not in relationship with. And maybe I even have a refusal to listen to those who are part of, of other cultural groups. Or I, I fail, you know, Scripture commands me to weep with those who weep. And as, I, as, as people talk to me, I, I, don't, I don't weep the way that I should as I think about suffering among other people. I, I think there are all sorts of sinful heart attitudes that if we allowed the Holy Spirit to, to speak to us as we read his word, we say, okay, I'm not guilty of maybe everything that someone, I, I watch the news and I hear what people say and I, I look at Twitter. I know I'm not guilty of those things, but, but as I look at God's word and let that be the guide for my standard of righteousness, I, I'm not where I need to be. And so we take a step back and we say, God, just help me be aware of where my heart has, has sinned here and help me be quick to repent. Help me not to have a hard heart that resists uh, people because of the, maybe the way they communicate some things sometimes. So help me be quick to repent of what I need to repent of. Now here's a second question. Okay, here we go. Uh, second question, what about corporate guilt and repentance? Now, a lot of times people say, well, um, you know, this group, you know, there's, there's collective guilt of this group. And you say, Daniel, what do we do with that? 
there, there are two biblical truths that I think we need to, to keep in mind as we think about the idea of corporate guilt and corporate repentance. One truth is that every person is, is responsible for their own sin. Okay, so I, I'm not culpable for the sin that you've committed. I'm not culpable for the sin that my great-grandfather committed. I'm, not, I, I'm culpable before God for my own sin. That's, that's one truth to keep in mind. But at the same time, what do we see in Scripture? We, we see that God holds nations accountable for sin, and, and there's, there's national judgment that takes place on a people. We also see in, in Scripture that, that judgment's going to fall on the household of God. And so there's also a sense in which a, a, a group of people can become responsible and, and culpable for the sins of that culture. So as I've tried to think about those, those two truths in tension, the, the thing that I think helps me make sense of this is, is this. There are some things that I can do that might make me guilty of the sins of my culture, that might make me share in corporate guilt. And so, for example, let's say that I participate in that sin of my culture. My, my culture is a materialistic culture. They love the things of the world. I participate in that. I'm guilty, right? And I'm, I'm under the, that same condemnation. Or maybe I have apathy toward the sin in the culture. I, I'm in a culture that doesn't value the life of the unborn. I, I don't really think about it. I, don't, I know it's against God's word, but I don't really think about it, care about it. I, I'm, I'm guilty in that sense. I'm, I'm part of this, this cultural guilt of, 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 of being indifferent toward this sin. Now, I'm not guilty in the same way as someone who actually commits the sin, but there's still this, this sense in which I'm participating in, in this apathy towards sin, which is sinful. Or I, I fail to speak prophetically against the sin. Or I fail to pray for, I fail to pray for the repentance of my, the, the people who are around me as they participate in that sin. Or, or I can become guilty if I fail to accept the judgment of God on a people for sin. We think about Jeremiah as he calls the people to, to accept what God's punishment is coming upon us. And what he's calling us to do now is to accept the, the just punishment of our God. And as God's judgment falls on our culture, I think we need to be praying for God's allowing us to repent. We need to be praying for his deliverance. We need to be praying that he would change hearts and minds. But as he brings judgment on our culture, which I believe he is already doing, at the same time we say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm, I'm going to accept the, the just hand of, of God's righteous judgment on a culture that doesn't worship him. And I'm going to allow God to bring judgment on this culture for the purpose that he says he brings judgment, which is not just to punish wickedness, but to bring people to repentance. I'm not going to resist it. I'm not going to say we don't deserve this. I'm not going to say we're, we, we don't deserve God's judgment. I'm, I'm going to accept the reality that at times God's going to bring his judgment. I'm going to pray that he brings it to, to bring about repentance. Think about the book of Revelation is, as the nation of Babylon, is, is, is a, as the city of Babylon is judged, there are all these nations who mourn and weep. No, no, don't judge Babylon. And the, the reason is that that's our gravy train. That's where, that's where we're getting all the, the luxurious goods, and so we don't want God to judge Babylon. That can't be our heart attitude. If that's our heart attitude, we're, we're guilty, maybe not of the specific sin that other people are committing, but we're guilty of, of being we're identifying ourselves with that sin. I think that's how I reconcile those things. So, for example, pre-Civil War, there were churches at the time and, and people in those churches who knew that the way that our, our country was treating black people was, was wrong. 
They recognized the sinfulness and evilness of it, and yet at times didn't speak against it. At times, even out of fear of, of losing status, of losing positions of prominence, they kept silent, sometimes even actively excluding other black Christians from, from associations. In fact, there was this a black congregation in New York City, St. Philip's Church. It was established in 1809 and petitioned a denomination to be a part of that denomination. In 1846, the denomination responded with this. They said, uh, this church, St. Philip's, neither St. Philip's nor any other colored congregation will be admitted into union with this convention so as to entitle them to representation therein. No, you can't be a part of us. It would be too divisive. They went on and said they're socially degraded and not regarded as proper associates for the class of persons who attend our convention. Now, the people who went along with that are, are guilty of, of sin there, right? And if we fail to identify sin and to call out sin in our culture as sin, we participate in it. Now, how do you become not part of your, the corporate guilt of your culture? Well, you you call it out, and at this time, there are white congregations and men and women who fought hard for the rights and freedoms of their brothers and sisters, many of them with their own lives. People lost friends, they lost businesses due to their refusal to participate in these systems. That's how we remove ourselves from co- corporate guilt. And believers, that time may well be upon us soon where we have to step out of the, of the culture and say, okay, I, I'm not going to participate in these things, and I'm going to bear the consequences of it, and I'm willing to do that for the sake of the gospel. To be indifferent towards sin, to minimize evil, brings upon us some level of culpability. You say, okay, Daniel, what does repentance look like? Here we're getting into some hard issues. And, and some people would tell me, look, Daniel, unless you call people to these specific actions of dealing with the systemic problems and culture, you know, whatever, you're not really dealing with the issue. And I would, I would say this, look, um, there is a critique of, of Christians who are part of the majority culture uh, in our country, the, the white Christians, they say, you know, White pastors, you call people to individual repentance, you focus on the gospel, and you don't focus on system-wide changes, like change the culture, change these structures. And uh, that's true for me. That's true for me. I don't have special revelation that lets me know exactly what needs to take place in terms of culture-wide laws or, you know, we get into trouble there. Instead, my focus is on the pervasiveness of sin in all human systems, and my call is on all of us to repent of sin and, and to place our faith in Jesus Christ and to change our behavior. And there's a call that God has, I think, to all of us to continual repentance by his people. And I would urge us to focus on the gospel and say, look, I want to trust that God is going to change our hearts. And, and the overarching, here's a passage that I would share that I hope would consume each of us as we think about ethnic sins. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1. There's application here. Paul says, look, formerly I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was insolent. I was an insolent opponent. But what happened? I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might to display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And I don't have even the beginning of the understanding of how to solve all the systemic problems and injustice that exists in the world, in the culture, in Washington, Illinois. Like, I don't know how to deal with all those things, but I do know this. There is a call on God's people to continual repentance of constantly saying before the Lord, God has saved sinners of which I am the foremost, and he's, he's displayed his grace and his mercy in me so that others can have eternal life. And so there is a need for us to call people to justice. There's a need for us to call people to righteousness in society, to passing just laws. But the, the primary focus of, of my ministry is to say, look, individuals and, and people who are part of, of this church, repent. Repent of sin, repent of ethnic sin, repent of materialism, repent of secularism, repent of all sorts of isms, and come to Jesus Christ and worship him. That's the hope. That's my hope. Now, and and by the way, I would just say this, too. Someone was asking me about the issue of of reparations and so forth and all those. I was like, look, you know, I don't know how to, I, I can't untie all those knots of injustice that have existed in our culture. But I, I do know this. It, if I, as an individual believer, know of ways that I can use my physical resources as an individual believer, as a church, to meet the needs of an unbeliever, it's yours, right? And if you're a believer, you're my brother or sister in Christ, and you have a need for something physical, the the things I have are yours. Maybe that solves the problem. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But I I would say that's that's our attitude as we think about our material possessions. I I don't trust uh, some other entity to solve the problem of the injustices that have taken place in our culture. But I do say this as a church. The things we have that God has given us are the world's. They can have them for the sake of the gospel. The things that we have, the material possessions we have, if there's need in this church, we can ha- you can have it, right? We want to meet those things for the glory of God. Okay, I'm not going to go through the next ones. Let me just say them. We've talked about them already. Number seven, the unity of the church is precious. The unity of the church is precious. It's why there's a council in Jerusalem. It's a big deal, and we don't preserve unity at any cost, but, but it's certainly a high cost. So we want to, as we think about the unity of the church, we're willing to, to listen. We're willing to ask clarifying questions. We weep with those who weep. We, we speak truth with the desire to edify. We don't wrangle about words. When in contentious situations, we, we turn down the temperature. We're not going to engage in throwing fuel on the fire. We, we identify, we reject slander that exists within the Christian culture We don't throw around words like racist. We don't throw around words like woke without very careful consideration of what those words mean and understanding what a person's saying. The unity of the church is precious and we preserve it. Number eight, God's work in other cultures should produce joy. 
One of the saddest things that happens in the book of Acts is whenever the gospel begins to be proclaimed by the Gentiles, the Jews in Jerusalem are like, mm, I don't know. What should have happened is what happens at the end of Acts 15 is there's a, of, of the section of the Jerusalem Council. There's joy in the hearts of people as they see God working in other cultures. And then finally, this is the hope. The power of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel of Jesus Christ is awesome. I don't have the answers to all the, the socioeconomic problems of the world, but I do have the answer to all the spiritual problems that exist in the world. And it's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have great confidence that the work of the Spirit can bring about the unity that God desires within his church and within this world by his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that as, as we think about the, the good news of the gospel, we would see it lived out. We would see it, it played out in the lives of people who are not yet worshipers of you, that they would place their, their faith in your son, Jesus. And then we would see a, a supernatural unity take place as our love for you consumes and, and causes all of our, our cultural differences to to uh, become comparatively nothing, even as they continue to exist and we continue to be the people we are, that those differences would, would become as nothing compared to the great joy of knowing you and worshiping you as our great God and Father. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.